namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami Perhaps we could start with a few words about uh, method and goal. Sometimes in sort of Buddhist circles, people will say there's no goal in Buddhism. Goal is goal, language like that, which is kind of confusing. I can see where it's coming from. So when you talk about goals and you talk about time, then you're talking about birth and death. So in that sense, we don't use the word goal, but certainly there are realizations. They're couched in, in various ways of the end of suffering, cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion, um, realization of the unconditioned, the deathless, and so on and so forth. So there are things to be realized, and peace is possible. Method is, is important to understand because sometimes people mistake method and goal. So say in, in, uh, in, in, in our Buddhist way of thinking, um, compassion is method, not goal. If you, made, if you made compassion the goal, you very easily could then try to get rid of that which is not compassion, anger, uh, fear, things like that. Try to get rid of that and always have the goal. But if you see method, method is, is, is like a tool that you use, then if your mind is inclining towards hatred or revenge or uh, resentment, things like that, the tool or the reminder or the method of compassion is just kind of telling you, don't go that direction. Don't walk down that path. Don't choose that language. Don't go there. It's not a rejection of anger and those kinds of energies. It was just kind of reflecting for you. If you get a chance, try forgiveness. If you get a chance, try compassion, which is a kind of a method, if you see what I mean. Because we very, very much get attached to uh, goals and ideals about what is, what is appropriate, what is perfect, what is good, what it should be, what it shouldn't be, and then we don't really liberate the mind. We don't liberate the mind because um, any condition cannot be liberating. It's just nature is always to be um, in, inherently unstable and fluctuating. So the, the delusion that we suffer from is very often looking for peace in that which is changing. This won't work. Guaranteed not to work. Because if it's changing, you can't stabilize it. You can for a while. You might have some control. Uh, but inevitably, the world events are bigger than your capacity to control or, or just organize life in a certain way, and the whole program is undermined. You can't do it. So, what, what, what uh, our way of thinking about this is there are factors which are very, very helpful for peace, there are ways of inclining which are very helpful for peace but they're not the goal. So, so today, say, today is the, the uh, full moon of August, which is 
the first full uh, month of the Rains Retreat. We've practiced together for this, this month. Um, and so we recited our, uh, Venerable Mishri recited the Patimokha rules. So we reflected on, the uh, Samaneras reflected on their rules and uh, Gabriel on the precepts. And so we were reminded of our, of our moral discipline, of our ethical standards, of our standards of renunciation. These are not the goals. But it's not to throw them out, not to say they shouldn't have any kind of moral or ethical principle, simply they're a tool. If you thought they were the goal, then every time you might, not necessarily, but you might think um, that you're uh, a bad person for feeling a certain way because you don't, you're not inclining towards these ethical principles. But what you're doing is you're just setting up boundaries, ethical principles, with, which are reflections and reminders. These these boundaries are safe. Stay in these boundaries. They'll take care of you. Don't go outside those boundaries. If you go outside those boundaries, you're going to get in trouble. So that's the Buddhist suggestion. As opposed to, you should always be some way. That's not, that's not a method. That's an imposition. That's a tyranny. A kind of tyranny of morality. And we've seen that where people can be very moral and very self-righteous. And I'm more moral, I'm, you know, I've got more precepts than you, or I saw you ate two cakes yesterday, you slob, or something profound like that. But that's, that's really not what it's about. Renunciation, or just like, like a fewness of wishes, say. Fewness of wishes is one of the principles or methods of monastic life, indriya, um, just in uh, sense restraint and fewness of wishes are one of the methods that the Buddha suggested. But let's say you take the goal to be fewness of wishes. You make that the goal. Well, what happens is that when you have your wishes are not few, in fact, they're, they're massively embarrassing, uh, and you want more and bigger and sweeter and all of that, then you might feel very guilty about that because that's not the goal. You know, I should be someone who has fewness of wishes. So the uh, sense of I comes in, ego consciousness comes in and says, I'm a terrible monk, I wanted four ice creams, and I ate three, or four. I'm a terrible monk, and you feel guilty. But if the boundary and the tool and the method is fewness of wishes, as I want more, and I'm not content with what is offered here as a monk, then that reflection, that method, that tool reminds me, it's fewness of wishes. And why is fewness of wishes important? Because fewness of wishes keeps you home. Many, many wishes takes you out. Takes you out into the objective world of experience. And the objective world of experience has no end to it. Wish upon wish upon wish, get it, want more, get it, want more, didn't like it, want different, want bigger, want smaller. It's endless. It doesn't really put an end to, to suffering. It's not peaceful. So fewness of wishes, you can see. If my wishes are very few, if I'm content with little, if I'm content with um, alms food, robes, simple medicine, simple lodging, if I'm content with that, if I take that as my basis, as we monastics do, that gives me a lot of freedom to look at desire, to observe desire to see the mind always wanting going outside into experience. 
And as I as I notice that wanting to go out, but I know fewness of wishes, I use fewness of wishes as a method, as a tool, as a reminder, and then this inclination to always go out to seek oneself begins to falter, begins to have less energy, and the mind stays home. And this is important, because peace you won't find in an object. All objects are tentative, right? They depend. They depend on all other manner of things. So the Buddha's teaching of peace, the realization of peace, is something which is not dependent. It's not something that is depends on other factors. So to realize that, you have to come home. You have to be here now. Not a matter of time. Not a matter of time. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to practice the methodology of being a good person, but seeing that being a good person is not the goal. The goal is either it's not also being a creep <laughs> or or a, or a bank robber. Obviously not. We know that's we're here for that. But being a good person is very helpful. Like being kind is very helpful. Being generous is very helpful. Well, what do you do if you have resentment? If you make the goal being someone who's a good person, what are you going to do with resentment? You say, I shouldn't feel resentment. You know, I should be a good person. And that's ego. It doesn't work. But if I feel resentment, I see resentment arising in consciousness, and I begin to introduce the method of this will change. This will arise and cease. Don't go there. Forgiveness is good. That kind of language, that kind of negotiating. Then the resentment, as it's witnessed, as something that's changing, you have a perspective now where you're not trying to change it. You're no longer engaged in the object. You know the object. And as you know that resentment, as you trust in awareness of change, as you trust in awareness of change, you begin to see, yeah, it's less strong. It's beginning to fall away. But at no time did you invest in the objective world. You didn't see it. You didn't <coughs> seek a distraction. You didn't blame. You invested in awareness of change. And that awareness of change takes you home. Trying to change things, we have to do. When it's time to turn out the lights, we turn out the lights. When it's time to have a cup of tea, we have a cup of tea. So we do, we do things. It's not that we don't do anything. And we know how to do that. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not, that's not so difficult. It's the other it's more difficult. The other more difficult, right? coming home. I was on the lake a couple of days ago, beautiful, beautiful Pike Lake, and I had been hankering to, to find this eagle's nest. And it was a project I keep forgetting about, so I was determined. So. Uh, I, I went out and I went between the two islands off the dock, for those of you who know. And then I, 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 I figured it was on the camping island. And then in, in, a, in the top of a tree, I saw the shape of a bird. And I said, oh, it doesn't look like an eagle, but it was the shape of a bird. So I paddled towards it, and I kept my attention on the tree. And the wind was blowing, so I had to maneuver it, and I'd watch and watch and watch. And then the shape of the bird changed to the trunk of the tree. So the shape of the bird was being created by the hole in the foliage, 
of the pine tree and it looked like a bird from the distance. But all the time, what was I doing? I was, I was attending to the tree, but I wasn't just attending in any haphazard way. I was questioning. You know, I was questioning, what is that? What is that? What is that? I wasn't analyzing, I was observing. What is that? What is that? And then boing, oh yeah, that's a tree trunk. And I looked at it, and then I heard it squawk. And two, two trees over there was the big juvenile, big black eagle. Not, not fully, it's a, it's a bald eagle. <laughs> bald eagle. Um, big white head, but this, the juveniles, they don't have the color yet. There it was, right there. It's actually not so far. Not so far from, from the tree. And then I folded around and found the nest and so on. Um, but what the, 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 the spiritual life isn't just about goodness, or at least from a Buddhist perspective. It's not just about being a good person, but it is about being a but not just. Not just, right? To say it's not about being a good person would be wrong because goodness begets a mind which is, has clarity and has confidence and has, has joy in it. A mind which is caught by various foolishness has a mind which has regret and remorse and, and is very, very distracted. Yeah? So you, you need stability of mind. And all these methods that we talk about, patience, compassion, uh, forgiveness, they're not ideals to be held to. They're ways to bring the mind back home, to give stability to the mind, to give joy to the mind, to give brightness to the mind. Then, or even before that if you want, then we have a chance to inquire into the, 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 very, the very difficult teaching to understand. And, and from the text, we... we we could see that the Buddha felt the same, that whatever he realized, he said, this is too difficult. I'm not going to teach. So Brahma Sampati comes along and says, oh, come on, give us a little teaching. <laughs> this is Brahma Sampati, by the way. Um, Brahma Sampati is the, the deity of language. Huh? What'd you say? Or poetry. And uh, so our mythology is such that the, the Buddha feels this is too subtle. Uh, people aren't really going to understand it, so maybe I'll just be quiet and meditate, stay in my room and watch the birds. <laughs> but Brahma Sampati came to him and he said, well, you know, there are those who have but little dust in their eyes. Please teach for the well-being of these beings. And a lot of dust in your eyes is when, when you're very caught up with the objective world, with worry, with with projects, with Facebook, <laughs> whatever you want. <laughs> and that constant being caught up with objects doesn't give you the bandwidth, doesn't give you the opportunity, doesn't give you the space to observe something more subtle. So renunciation and this kind of life is, is helpful for that. I was talking with Sirimedo about the, the very real problem we have in, in being attached to objects. And when I say objects, I mean thoughts, emotions, memories, 
gadgets, um, sight, sounds, taste, smells, the whole gambit of, 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 of sense experience. The mind always out and caught with objects. I like to think of it as objects. Because I can, I can, like I can feel this clock, and that's an objective feeling of pressure. Right? I can have a memory come through, but that's an object to awareness. Uh, I can feel an emotion of sadness, that's an object in awareness, because I can know it. So we tend to, you know, we tend to seek our fulfillment through objects, <coughs> through emotions, through experiences, through creativity, through comfort, through um, good food and good company, and a good subscription to Netflix. You know, whatever you want, right? None of it is immoral. None of it's immoral. But what we tend to do is then we just find a certain amount of comfort, and that changes a certain amount of distraction and that changes. And after a while, you, you, you kind of get tired of that. For those who have a kind of spiritual bent, you kind of get tired of that and you, and you think, well, wait a minute, is there, am I missing something? And, and then the teachings of the Buddha begin to, I think, really pique your curiosity, just like the tree looking for the eagle. And the curiosity that is, for me, um, stimulated is the, the very language he used about peace. So I, I often mention this, but uncreated. Peace is uncreated. So, are you looking for the eagle? You raise that question. Uncreated. Now that puts your mind in a state of questioning attention. But now you're not questioning with intellect, you're questioning with, with attention itself, uncreated. And as soon as you place that sincerely, you've reached the uncreated. Unborn. You hear the whippoorwill? That sound was born, right? Now listen to the movement of the whippoorwill. What's not moving? Listen to change. What's not changing? Get it? The teachings on change, then, what they're pointing to is something very obvious, that that which begins ends, and we all know that. Right? So, like, the Buddha said that the seasons change. Well, it doesn't take a Buddha to, to say that. And we all know that the seasons change. That birth and death take place. Of course they do, but... He was also pointing to the unchanging. How do you realize the unchanging? Well, if you take the time just to listen and not evaluate and not judge and not take preferences, just listen. That's hard to do, but just listen. And notice change. 
then you begin to intuit the unchanging awareness. Always here and now. You can't you you can't you can't get that tomorrow. It's always just to be here and now. Uncreated, unformed, timeless. Is this is this sense of presence tomorrow? Do you find it tomorrow, or do you find it now, 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 now again? So what I suggested to Siri May, though, in, in we were talking about the the mind going between the kind of she loves me, she loves me. No, no, <laughs> that's the wrong image. <laughs> I wasn't talking about that. It was doubt. Oh dear, this is recorded. <laughs> we were talking about doubt. Uh, about some um, other problem, and I said, "Yeah, it's like someone says she loves me. She loves me not." <laughs> we'll wipe that out. <laughs> or should I or shouldn't I? Or you know how the mind goes? It goes from one polarity to another. Like resentment, I should resent. I should love. Or worry, I should do this or I shouldn't do that. Or anger, I shouldn't be angry. Or I'm really going to tell them, I better not tell them. I'm really going to tell them, I better not tell them. The mind goes like this, picking up one and the other, one and the other. And why can it never be free? Because it's looking in the wrong place. You never resolve it that way. You just go pick the daisy. (laughs) But if you say to yourself, in the midst of that doubting dialogue, we've all had that, you say to yourself, uncreated. You step out of the dialogue. You step out of the the duality. Usually we just stay in the duality of hope, uh, despair, liking, not liking, I should, I shouldn't, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm going to tell them off, I'm not going to tell them off. We go in these cycles of self, back and forth, back and forth. And you know how endless it is. It never ends. You never resolve it. You fall asleep, and then it's there again. They go, oh God, then you annihilate with sleep. It just goes on and on and on with thinking mind. And you can't resolve it there, but where you can resolve it is in the unconditioned. So when you start to do that, when you start to use the language of Nibbana, and this in Visuddhimagga, this is take, take Nibbana as your object. You know, nibbana, if you think Nibbana is some kind of place in Florida, that's not going to work. Or it's in the future, that's not going to work because that's the wrong interpretation of it. So use other words. You use words like uncreated. Interesting word, uncreated. And then your mind is kind of raised to the sense of, is that a bird or not? Is that the eagle or not? It's the same kind of attention. It's attention with, with curiosity rather than you're just trying to focus your mind to get rid of that worry, suppress everything. It doesn't work. So you, you raise up that, that, that inquiring attention and uncreated. And then you're there. You trust it. You don't trust it. You start to think, am I there? And you're back in thought. But if you trust that, you actually use that language, uncreated. What you'll notice is this polar dialogue which you're caught up into, or inner argument, you'll see its end. Just by saying uncreated, you'll see the end of that particular part of the thought. So, uh, I'm really going to tell them, uncreated. And that ends. 
I shouldn't tell them. I'm created. <coughs> you kind of see it end. And as you see the ending of something, you see the space around it. And as you see the space around it, you begin to know where peace is. Peace is not an object. Happiness is an object. Um, sweetness is an object. Sourness is an object. Sadness is an object. Elation is an object. Inspiration is an object. But peace is not an object. Peace is, is ineffable. It just is. So consider like like the way the the way you practice meditation are you just fighting with the polarities of emotion so you feel guilty about something which is you know whatever it is guilt will come up if that's the habit and then you try to well I shouldn't feel guilty I'm a good person that's not going to work because it's still ego but if you feel guilty you know assuming you haven't killed a neighbor if you have killed a neighbor you better feel guilty you know <laughs> but you know, I don't think we're there. But you feel guilty about nothing, you know, dropping the spaghetti on the floor or whatever you did. Or you feel bad about something. Just what badness is created. It comes into the mind. Personality is created. All the personalities that we have to endure, our own personality traits, they're just, they're just created stuff from family and TV shows. Like if, I imagine if you watched Seinfeld for three weeks, part of your personality be one of the characters in Seinfeld, wouldn't it? That's what you'll find. You know, you'll, your attention will pick up on one of the characters. I've never watched Seinfeld, by the way. I see it in The Guardian. <laughs> so you'll watch it, you'll watch it, you'll watch it, and there'll be some character there that will pique your interest, and you'll find that your personality will be altered by that. You will be, to some extent, that character. You see it in little ways. So you think, you know, parents, good bad, indifferent, uh, culture, uh, race, uh, your social situation, all of that creates this sense of a person. But that sense of a person can be known. You can know that you are, like even someone who's a racist, say, if, you, if a racist impulse comes up, if your, if your ideal or the, or the goal is to never be racist, then that racist the perception which comes up is very threatening. I'm a bad person. I am racist. But you're not. Racism is just conditioned to the mind because of the family and so on. So you can, you can know and a feeling of, uh, of race, a racial hatred and know I'm created and see that thing cease. But it's very powerful to come up a lot. Each time you get the stimulus of the race, you get that. But that's not who you are, that's just cultural conditioning. To believe in racism, well, you wouldn't be here. I don't think you'd be here. So we usually don't have that problem. We don't believe in those things. But if that arises, it's not bad, it's not a problem, it's not self. It's a conditioned phenomena. And you can resolve it by just saying, uncreated. What's the uncreated? Now, people don't usually trust that, and, they, and these kinds of things that might come up, they feel horrible about it. And then they, you know, they feel bad about it. And oh, I'm a terrible person, I'm racist. But you're not. Racism is just conditioned into the mind. 
So when we, when we don't witness these things uh, from this stance of the witness, when we don't know them, we take them personally, then we get into these inner fights, inner struggles. Shouldn't be this way, shouldn't be that way, terrible to think about. There was a... Way back in, in Hampstead, this would have been 1978, uh, a woman phoned Ajahn Sumedho and said, I have to see you, I have to see you. Ajahn Sumedho is our teacher, American teacher, was just here. Uh, and so she came and she was all distraught and, and Aunt Lompo said, so what's, what's wrong? What's, what, what happened? And, and she said she went to visit her daughter who had just given birth some months before to the first grandchild. And this was a grandmother now talking with us and she said, I saw the child and I wanted to poke her eyes out. So she fled from the house felt terribly guilty, finally came to Ajahn Sumedho and told him the story. He asked her, did you do it? She said, of course not. He said, what's the problem? <laughs> it's just a weird thought, probably from a television show or something. Oh, I'm a terrible person, but she didn't do it. <laughs> that was a great, I remember that, a great answer. Did you do it? Of course not. It's a thought. A horrible thought, yeah. And so we have morality. Morality is the method. We have compassion. Compassion is a method. right? And when those things come up, rather than get caught in this sense of guilt or fear, and quite often we fear these things. Like we think, because we think they're permanent. We think they're permanently us, but they're not. They're just phenomena that come through. And your identity is much better to be witness or awareness itself, isn't it? And use the method. Use, you know, keep to moral principles. That's your guideline. That's your protection. That's your safety. And when they come up, maybe it's just purification. So, like jealousy, say. Uh, who was it? Was it Longpole? Someone was saying they really um, detested jealousy in themselves. So jealousy comes up. It arises. And then what do you do with it? Well, well of course you feel guilty about it. And hate yourself, but that—that—that's still ego. That doesn't work. But if you know jealousy is jealousy, it's just that way. It's just that way. That's hard to do. But you do it, and you say unconditioned. You you recede into the space of awareness and knowing, and you see this thing cease in that space. You see it fall away. Now. If jealousy, say, as an example, is a very powerful condition in consciousness, you might have to do this for five, ten years. Right? It's not like, it's not easy. It's not easy. But what else works? Now, what seems to work is if we distract. So if you feel jealousy, say, I don't know why I'm there, but anyway, as an example, if, if jealousy is felt, then it seems much more efficient just to get rid of it by distracting, because you get an instant result. But you don't get a long-term result. All you get is the need for another object, be it food or whatever you want, distraction, reading, blaming, thought, uh, guilt. It's just another object, and it never ends. It never really ceases, because you're still in the wrong place. I'm looking at the tree, at the eagles over here. Huh? But if I keep looking, uncreated, 
I keep paying attention to that, I'll notice how that feeling of jealousy was, was a thought with emotional content, and it ceased and it ended. And I'll begin to have more confidence in this strange language, the language of taking Nibbana as your object, unconditioned, uncreated, unborn. Peace, that's where peace is. So th this, is, this is a spiritual practice rather than a psychological practice. The psychological practices are important, but psychology itself is a tool, it's not the end. It's a method, very good. Very, I mean, we're very fortunate at Western psychology now, but it's a tool, it's not the end. And the end is this, this sense of non-grasping. We, we say these simple things like non-attachment, it seems so nothing. Non-attachment, I mean, that's got no emotional power at all. But it's actually very, very profound. Because when I can see something like resentment arise and say, uncreated, that's non-grasping. And then the resentment falls back into the silence of the mind. Now, if you can have the faith to do this for long periods of time, then you begin to feel that vibrating silence is dominant rather than the noise of thought and conditions and emotions and objects. But if you, if you don't have the trust and faith to try this, you usually don't, you don't get the quick result you want and you go back to the old methods of replacement, substitution and distraction, which you know, kind of ameliorate the, the situation. So when, you know, when, when you're when your mind gets into the kind of really idealistic modes, I should be this and I should be that, realize that, that that's the problem of wrong definition. It's a wrong, it's, it's a wrong understanding, because you are not that. And rather than go that direction, go to the place of witnessing by saying, what's uncreated here? And then there's silence, and there's silence again. So, some recommendations? I'll leave that for your reflection. Sadhu.